Amen. Thanks, Lonnie. Lonnie is my friend that kind of beats around the bush and doesn't just <laughs> say. <laughs> um, but as, as we get started today, I don't know who that little 12-year-old couple is on the left, but that it, we've been married 34 years today. So, and, and, and I did used to have hair, and Susan had Farrah Fawcett hair. But you know what? It's so funny. She looks exactly the same. Yeah. So, I'm married up as most men out there. Raise your hand if you're married up. Way up. Like, way, we all married way up. And I can tell you what, I wouldn't be a believer today if it wasn't for her. For sure. Um, and I'm becoming an old sap. <laughs> Golly, man. <laughs> now, let me, uh, let me say this. We've been, um, for several months, we've been walking through the book of Acts. And that is what we do. That's the way we preach. That's the way we teach. We walk through uh, different books of the Bible, and we've been in Acts, and Acts is a long book, and I'm long-winded, so we'll probably be in Acts for quite a while. But we also reserve the right to step out of, uh, out of a book study, out of a preaching and teaching through a book to, to address topics when topics uh, kind of show up, and, uh, and we're getting ready for Easter. So last week, we started a series called From the Ashes, and uh, it's going to be six weeks from, from, from last week leading up. To Easter in this series that we're in, um, we're, we're looking at different aspects of the life of Christ, different things about His life, and and how you and I can be encouraged uh, by His life, and how you and I can be encouraged really in and in, in the life that He provides for us. And it's not just any life; it's an abundant life that He offers us. Last week, if you remember, we were in Matthew chapter four, and we walked through uh, the temptation when. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And we backed up to chapter 3 in Matthew where, uh, where he was baptized, where, where John the Baptist baptized him. And that, in, that, that prepared him for what happened in the desert. And I hope that we were encouraged. I know I was super encouraged because he really provides us in Matthew chapter 4. He provides us with the perfect example, the perfect template, the perfect model of how to battle and overcome temptation. So I hope you were encouraged last week. So we're going to do that again today. We're going to look at another, another aspect, another thing about the Lord's life. And I want to read you a, an, an article from the North American, which was a newspaper in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This is from October 22nd, 1839. So however many years ago that is, close to 200 years ago. And it's kind of in the old Englishy kind of language, so just bear with me and listen, uh, listen well. But it's kind of that language. And here's what this article says. It said, during the American Revolution, which was about 40 or 50 years prior to when this article was written, it says, an officer not habited in the military costume, it means an officer who was not in uniform, was passing by <clears throat> where a small company of soldiers were at work making some repairs upon a small fortification. So this officer, out of uniform, is on a horse. He goes by where, uh, where a small unit was making some repairs. And the commander of that little squad, who was a corporal, was giving orders to those who were under him relative to this huge piece of wood. The article calls it a stick of timber. Um, but relative to this big, 
big piece of wood that they were trying to raise up to the top of this fortification they were working on. And the article said the timber went up hard, and on this account, the voice of the little great man, the voice of the corporal was screaming, heave away, there she goes, heave ho. And the officer before spoken of, the one out of uniform on his horse, um, stopped his horse when he arrived at that place and seeing the men struggling with the temper, with the timber, asked the corporal why he did not take hold and render them aid and help them. And the corporal was astonished and he looked at the officer. Of course, he doesn't know he's an officer. He's out of uniform. But he looked at the officer with the arrogance of an emperor, the article says, and said, Sir, I'm a corporal. And the officer responded, I was not aware, which would be like my bad today, right? And taking off his hat, the ununiformed officer bowed and said, I beg your pardon, Mr. Corporal. And upon that, he dismounted his horse. He flung the bridle over the post and he lifted, the article says, till the sweat stood in drops all over his body. When the timber was elevated to its proper place, turning to the man clothed in brief authority, he said, Mr. Corporal, he said, when you have another such job and have not enough men, send to your commander-in-chief and I will come help you a second time. The corporal was stunned because it was General George Washington that he was talking to, and he didn't know that it was General George Washington. And so, y'all, that's a story, but it's a true story. I assume the media told the truth back then in 1839. So that, so that was, sorry, that, uh, so that was from the Philadelphia newspaper, but it's an example of humility. Y'all, and it gives us another reason maybe to admire George Washington, but on the other hand, it gives us a reason to kind of snub our nose at this arrogant corporal, and the story doesn't require any sort of explanation because all of us understand what's going on. We get it because there have been times in our lives, every one of us, where we've acted more like the corporal than we really would probably care to admit. Because we want to be humble, we want to be helpful, we want to be thankful, we want to think of others more so than we think of ourselves. And so George Washington, our first president, who, who really was one of the wealthiest men in America at the time, he was a man who walked away from the seat of power when he could have stayed in the seat of power, but he walked away from the seat of power really to go back to the homestead, to his homestead. And in June of 1783, which was just a few years after the Revolution, Washington wrote a circular that was sent out to the states, and I want to read you a section of that circular, and this also is in that old Englishy kind of stuff, so bear with me again. But Washington said this, and this is real history. He said, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that grace and humility, and temper of mind, which were the characteristics of Jesus Christ, and without a humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Now, I love me some George Washington, but today we have an opportunity to, to, to learn from Jesus' life, because he gives us the greatest example of what it looks like to humble ourselves, and to serve others. King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, who humbled himself and conquered death so that me and you can, can experience life. Again, just any life? No. Abundant life, John 10.10 10 says, abundant life. So first and foremost, Jesus set the example. 
he set the example. If you've got a worship guide, this is a, the first fill in the little fill in the blank. If you don't have a worship guide and want one, if you'd raise your hand. But Jesus set the example. L- listen to Paul's words from Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be in two kind of bigger sections of Scripture. The first being Philippians chapter 2. He said, Paul writes in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So he's saying, don't let yourself be the motivation. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from the big head. Do nothing from conceit. That doesn't need to be the motivator. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul, his encouragement for me and you, is, and for believers, is to be like Christ. Y'all, that's what Christ-likeness means. If we're going to name the name, we ought to look like the name that we name. That's what being a disciple is. So our attitudes ought to be like his. Our actions ought to mirror his actions. We ought to think like him and see like him and talk like him and walk like him. R.C. Sproul, raise your hand if you know who R.C. Sproul is. Sproul said this. Sproul is a great theologian, great writer, great pastor. Sproul said this. He said there's a disconnect. He said there's a problem. And he said the problem is that there seems to be a huge delta between what ought to be and what is. Gandhi said this. Did you didn't think I was going to stand up here and quote Gandhi. Well, here's what Gandhi said, though. He said, I like your Christ. I just do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Y'all, that's an indictment. That's an, that's an indictment. Because if we name the name of Christ, then we ought to want to look like him and act like him and talk like him and treat people the way that he did. You and I ought to strive to be like the one that we claim to follow. Now, we're, we're going to be, we're imperfect as the day is long, and I'm the chief one in the front of the line uh, of being imperfect. That doesn't change the bar, though, because he's the bar. And so I want to walk like him. I want to be like him. And you may say, well, yeah, that's a whole lot easier said than done because because Paul's talking about the very Son of God, and you're talking about me. Well, yeah, I get that. And I, I get that, and I'll give you that. And I'll really, I'll give myself that. But Paul goes on in this, in this passage in Philippians chapter 2, kind of enlists out some of, the, um, some of the attitudes and some of the actions that we ought to be modeling. So he goes on, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 6. You know, in, in verse 5 he says, "...which is your, you yourselves in Christ Jesus." who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7 says, but emptied himself. How did he empty himself? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So I want to give us some some specifics that Paul identifies in Jesus that I believe that we can all kind of get our arms around, that we can all sort of get on board with. The first is this. We don't need to be taking advantage of our position. 
Don't take advantage of your position. Don't lord yourselves over other people. And I believe that every one of us at some point in our lives, in some, uh, some arena of our life, somehow, some way, we are going to be uh, in leadership. We're going to be in leadership somehow over somebody. Some of us may be in leadership over a thousand people. Some of us may be uh, in leadership over 50 people. Some of us, our leadership is being the head of the house. But I'm in leadership over somebody at some point. We'll have opportunities, and they really present themselves all the time, to take advantage of other people. But Paul is reminding us that Jesus had all the power, he had all the opportunity in the universe to use his position to his advantage. And instead of doing just that, he had all the opportunity and all the position to use that for his advantage. But even though he had all of that, he willingly chose to lay that aside. You think about one of the temptations that we talked about last week, Matthew chapter 4. The devil takes him up high on a mountain, if you remember. The devil takes him up high on a mountain, and he shows him all, the Bible says he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. I don't know how he did that, but he showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says to Jesus in that moment, all of that can be yours right now. Now, is all that going to be his anyway? Say, yes, it is. But what the devil was trying to do is tempt him out of, out of the gospel, out of Calvary, out of hanging on the cross, said, you can have all of that right now for the low, low price of bowing down and worshiping. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. He laid that aside for the moment because it wasn't in the Father's will. He willingly chose to lay that to the side. So number one, don't take advantage of your position. It's very applicable to our lives. Number two, serve others. Serve others. That's so simple. Y'all, when Jesus laid aside his position, his, his royal position, his kingly position, he chose instead to become a servant. He chose to become a servant, and throughout his entire earthly ministry, he constantly, over and over, just read the Gospels, gave himself to the needs of other people. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 20, starting in verse 26, and these are Jesus' words. He said, whoever be great among you must be your servant. He said, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And he said, even as the Son of Man, and you can almost see him there when he says this, he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So y'all, serve others. Don't take advantage of your position. Serve others and then give your life away. Give your life away. Jesus' humility ultimately leads him to the cross. We just read he gave his life as a ransom for many. You know the story. You know the gospel story. You hear it all the time. You surely hear it here every Sunday. But what about your story? What is it that you may be holding on to too tightly, like all the things that you want, your little kingdom, you know, your stuff and your dreams and your aspirations. What is it, and there's something, I don't, I don't know what it is, but what is it that you need to let go of? 
where or who can you give your life to even this coming up week? Y'all, I got a good friend of mine, a very wealthy good friend of mine. I've known him for years and years, and he told me this a long time ago, and he, he has really he's told it to me multiple times. He said his life plan is that when they put him in the box and put him in the ground, that he will have just the day before written the last check, and he would be broke, and that he would have spent everything that he had on the kingdom. That's his life plan, and it really is his life plan. That everything that he has, he, would, he could time it out just perfectly, that it would all be for the sake of Christ, and that it would all be for the kingdom. What a great plan. It's a humble, humble guy. You know, humility is, it is not as much a destination to be reached as it is an attitude to be embraced. And it's a hugely important attitude. And it's a hugely important um, posture to, to, to live and to kind of stand in. It's a hugely important way of living to the Lord. Give your life away. This next point's going to sound probably weird. I think it's going to sound weird. But humility is kind of a big deal. And that sounds contradictory just even probably the way that I said it. At best, it sounds a little odd probably. Like, can you imagine humility making a big deal of itself? Humility pointing to the jersey number like big shot athletes do when they make a big play. You know, wouldn't it, it seem silly if, <clears throat> if humility was dancing around the end zone screaming, look at me, look at me, look at me? That sounds absurd probably, but... I'm telling you that humility is a big deal. Look at the Lord's life. Look at Jesus' life and the number of different times all over Scripture where the Bible encourages humility and warns about the incredibly destructive nature of pride. Pride and humility, they're polar opposites. It is all over Scripture, and I don't have time to go through. There's hundreds of places in Scripture. But I want to give you just a couple, and we, we heard a minute ago from Paul in the letter that he writes to the church at Philippi. See what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 5. He says this, starting in verse 5. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper, proper time he may exalt you. It's Peter. You got Paul, then you have Peter, you have James, the Lord's brother the leader of the, of the Jerusalem church, he quotes the same Old Testament passage that Peter did, and he says in, in chapter 4, verse 6, James says, again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter, James, both of those New Testament church leaders, they're encouraging humility. And both of those men quote a passage from King Solomon where he said that in Proverbs chapter 3 where he's describing, where Solomon is describing God opposing the proud and giving grace over here to the humble. I don't want God opposing me. Like, uh, some, somebody else say amen. Like, I know you don't want God opposing you. I don't think I want to read Scripture and then look at the man in the mirror and say, God is opposing you. That in and of itself is probably a, 
a, a mighty big argument to promote selflessness, to promote humility. Take it a little step further. You look at what David, King David, wrote in Psalm 138. The English Standard uh, Translation, English Standard Version says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. How many of you, raise your hand if you've used the word haughty in the last 10 years. (laughs) You know, I love the New Living Translation of this verse. Again, Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is great, it's a little more readable. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. So God's opposition that we read in Proverbs is the opposition is nasty enough. But the idea in Psalm 138 that God distances himself from prideful people, that ought to be terrifying. Really, that terrifies me. Pride and arrogance are incompatible with love and humility. You know, which means that Pride and arrogance are attitudes that we will only find way far away from Jesus. Does that make sense the way I said that? Pride and arrogance are attitudes that we'll only find way far away distance from Jesus. They're heart positions. Pride and arrogance, they're heart positions. Pride and arrogance, they're they're postures that will keep you at a distance from righteousness. Pride is a train wreck. It really is a train wreck. It'll destroy you. Pride and arrogance are train wrecks that will destroy you. I heard a story about a Boy Scout. He's on a plane with a a Boy Scout, pilot, computer programmer, and a pastor. There's always a pastor in the story. There's trouble on the plane. Plane's starting to dive, starting to go down. They realized they had to put on parachutes and jump. And the only problem, there's three parachutes and there were how many people? Are y'all listening? Four people, thank you. Pilot comes out there and says, look, I got a wife and I got four kids. I need a chute. And he grabs a chute and he jumps. Computer programmer says, well, I've got an IQ of 162 and I've got all the knowledge. I'm like one of the smartest people on the planet. I've got all the knowledge and the world needs my knowledge. And I cannot have my knowledge and my brain and my smarts go down in the plane with me. So I need a parachute. The world needs me, he said. And so he grabs the bag and he jumps. Pastor looks at the little boy and said, well, look, I have lived a long, full life. And you're just a young man. He said, you take the last chute and I'll go down with the plane. You know, pastors are so giving and (laughs) humble and... Anyway, the little boy looks at the, at the uh, pastor. He said, Mr. Preacher, don't worry about it. The brilliant computer programmer just grabbed my knapsack. <laughs> so look, a lot of times, y'all, we are too smart for our own good, and we are too much of a big shot. You know, we're, we're too smart for our, our own britches. You know, we think way, way too much of ourselves way more of ourselves than we ought to. You know, we think we're such a big shot, and every time that we jump out to do right, we probably fall on our face. Because God has what we need in order to jump and land on our feet. And all we got to do is humble ourselves and submit. And like, I get that the submission is so tough. 
Lonnie was just talking about that, submitting uh, his financial life. It's, it's tough, like, and I get it. But we are called to submit. We are called to deny self, deny self, deny self. To take ourselves off the throne, to dethrone ourselves. The Bible goes on and on and on and on about it. Multiple examples from Jesus himself about love and humility in total contradiction to pride and arrogance. Look at John chapter uh, 13. First 17 verses of John chapter 13. Now, context-wise, John 13 is the night before Jesus is crucified. It's the night before he dies. It's called the Last Supper. It's the night before he dies. Now, did he know that he was going to die? Yes. Did he know how he was going to die? Yes. Did he know that it was going to hurt? Don't act like he didn't feel pain. Don't even. Don't act like, just like last week, don't act like he wasn't hungry in the desert. He was. So he knows the night before what's about to happen. He'd been telling his guys for three years, and they still didn't really quite get it, you know. But he knows, night before, he knows what is on the horizon. And this is what he says and does. Verse 13 says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, verse 13 says. And really, I never really thought about this until I really dove in and studied this week. Maybe you haven't thought about this. This is really the last thing that he ever taught his guys. The very last thing. He'd been pouring into them for three plus years. And in his earthly ministry, this is the last thing that he taught them. Last things are a big deal. Last words. If you've ever been with a father or a mother or a child, you know, heaven forbid, who passed, who died physically, the last thing they say is a big deal. So the last thing that Jesus teaches is this here in, in uh, John 13. So verse 2 says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, Jesus, he rose up from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, took a towel, tied a towel around his waist, and then he poured water into a bucket, basin, sorry. He begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around his waist. So at the end of verse 1, John records the breadth and the depth of Jesus' love for them. The Bible says at the end of verse 1, he loved them to the end. That is a beautiful statement. The, the, the God creator of the universe loved them, Scripture says, loved them to the end. And then in those other three or four verses, we see how that begins to, we see how that plays out. So the first thing we see is we see love and humility exemplified. It's exemplified. In those first five verses, Jesus had demonstrated his love throughout the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is very, very love-focused. And now we see his love in his patience with Judas, and we see his love in his service to all of them, to all of those disciples. Verse 6 says this. 
It says he came to Peter, who said to him, Lord, you were fixing to wash my feet? Jesus said, what, I, what I'm doing, you don't really understand now, but you, you will. He says, but afterward, you'll, you'll understand, Peter, you'll understand. And Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. It's just like what Peter would say. It ain't fixing to happen. You ain't washing my feet. You can almost hear him get up, back up, and say, you ain't about to touch my nasty feet. But what does Jesus say? He says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And Peter's like, okay. <laughs> like, I got to have a share with you. So he's like, okay. So Peter says, Lord, and, you know, it's just like Peter again. He's like, no, 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 not just my feet. He said, how about my, my hands and my head? And Jesus said, don't take it too far, Peter. <laughs> he, said, he said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Think about that, y'all. Jesus tells him, he says, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Why did he say that? Because he knew who was about to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. So he's explaining stuff, right? He's explaining stuff to them. He knows it's the last thing he's going to teach them. So he's going to explain and he's going to do. So we see love and humility explained in those few verses. And again, love and humility are not so much emotions as they are attitudes. And please hear this. They're attitudes that have to result in action. They're attitudes that we have in our heart that play out in things that we do. Verse 12. When he'd washed their feet and put, put back on his, his outer garments, resumed his place, he went and sat back down wherever he was, and he said to him, do you understand, do you all understand what I've done to you? He says, you call me teacher, you call me Lord, and, and I am. That's right. And he says, and if I'm your Lord and if I'm your teacher and I have washed your feet, then you ought to wash each other's feet. He says, I've given you an example. I'm give, I've given you all an example. I just was on my knees washing your nasty feet. You ought to do that too. You should do just as I have done to you. He says, truly I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master. He said, no messenger is greater than the one who sent him. But then in verse 17, he says, if you know these things, this is such a great point. You know, Jesus was a smart guy. He said, if you know these things, and it's great to know them. Like, you've got to have some amount of knowledge. You ain't got to have a master's degree or a doctorate or a Ph.D., but it's great to know things. If you know these things, he said, wonderful, but blessed are you if you do them. Because we don't know things from Scripture so we can sit on the couch and play video games. No, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. So we see love in these last few verses. We see love and humility encouraged. He is encouraging that in us. So we see it explained. We see it encouraged. So the Lord of lords, the king of kings gets down on his knees. He fills up a mop bucket with water. 
He washes the feet of his disciples. And you're probably like, I get it. That's the way I was. I get it for sure. But do you really get it? Because I want you to understand in that culture, back yourselves up a couple thousand years. It is not the job of the man of the house to do that. It is not the job of the rabbi to be washing nobody's feet. People who understand and are familiar with first century culture would read this and immediately recognize how totally socially inappropriate Jesus' actions were. Sign me up to be socially totally inappropriate. Like I want to be that guy. Never in Jewish and Greek and Roman culture ever would a, quote, superior wash the feet of a, quote, inferior. It just wouldn't happen. Ever it wouldn't happen. In that culture, if we were in that culture, and me and Susan had somebody, we had Lonnie and his family over for dinner. They ain't driving a car over there, right? They're walking. They're walking either in sandals or they're walking barefoot. And Lonnie got some nasty feet, let me tell you. <laughs> so if they come over to our house for dinner and they come in, I ain't washing them nasty feet. It's not my job. It's my servant's job, or it's my slave's job. It's not the man of the house's job to do that. Well, y'all, that's the culture that John 13 is written into. We read right by that stuff. Oh, wasn't that sweet? Jesus, wasn't that nice? He washed the disciples' feet. Dude, they would have, people would have read that and been like, what? He defamed himself by doing that. It is the ultimate act of humility. Even the posture, if you think about it, you know, that's the posture. And the person that, whose feet you're washing is kind of above you. So even the posture is socially totally inappropriate. So that is what your Savior did. How in the world can we not do the same thing? Like how in the world can we not? He encourages that. Scripture, Scripture encourages that. You know, y'all, we, we find God's joy. And you know there is a difference between joy and, joy and happiness. Often happiness is bound by time and circumstances. True, gospel-focused, Jesus-centered joy is eternal. And we find that when we, when we act on the principles that Jesus taught. See it all over Scripture particularly here. So I'm going to say the first thing that we ought to pray is this. Is what's flip one more one more. We ought to pray, Lord wash me. If you ain't been washed, he needs to wash you cuz he can wash every bit of dirt and filth right off of you. So the very first thing that we got to pray, if you've never been cleansed by him, he needs to wash you. And you need to be on your knees and crying out, Lord, wash me. But the very next thing needs to be, Lord, help me to wash others. Verse 17, blessed are you if you do them. Yeah, you got to know them. You, you can't do something if you don't know it. So you got to know it. It's just not good enough. Do them. We can be full of, of joy as Christians, by 
by acting on the principles that are in these verses in Philippians chapter 2 and in John 13. Conducting our lives in a way where, where we forgive, where we serve, where we love our brothers and our sisters in Christ. When we avoid criticism. When we avoid whining and complaining all the time. When we avoid hateful conflict. You ain't going to avoid conflict in your life. But conflict doesn't have to be hateful, right? The world says if we disagree, we got to hate each other. That's not how Christians handle conflict. You want to name the name of Christ, handle conflict correctly. Go read Matthew 18. we got to learn how to do that. Conflict doesn't have to be hateful. So when we can avoid criticism, when, when, when we can avoid hateful conflict, when we can avoid complaining and whining, and when we can forgive and serve each other the way that Christ served, harmony and unity just kind of show up in the body. We can be people of the towel. What a cool phrase. We can be people of the towel. Write that down. I don't think it's in your worship guide, but it's cool. When Jesus said in, in, in verse 12 in John 13, when he said, do you, remember, he said, do you understand? And he's like, Peter, James, Andrew, Matthew, like dudes, do, do you understand what I, you can almost hear him doing this. Do y'all, are y'all getting it? Like, do you understand what I've done to you? He might have added, do y'all understand that you were an heir of the towel? We, as Christ followers, are heirs of the towel. Like, you ought to keep a towel in your back pocket. People say, what is that? You'd be at the Walmart. What is that? You need me to wash your feet? We are heirs of the towel. The power, the motivation, the grace to wash one another's feet is directly proportionate to the way that we see ourselves. Jesus saw himself as the king of kings and yet he washed their feet. Think about that one. I think if we can get our arms around the fact that that we as believers serve Christ the King, we will be compelled to serve in revolutionary love and radical, radical humility. That is what people of the towel do. We love in a revolutionary way and we are radically humble. And the world will say, humility doesn't get you anywhere. People of the towel are radically humble. So I want to pray, Lord, help me. Lord, help me to identify. Help me to identify with Jesus in the way that I treat people. Lord, help me to identify with with Jesus in the way I talk to people, in, in the way I act towards people. Lord, whenever I'm tempted to think more of of myself than I really ought to, Lord, I need you to remind me of the pecking order. And Lord, I confess to you that it is often, Lord, that I need you to remind me of the pecking order. Lord, remind me of, of my position before you. 
Lord, help me to see others as more significant than myself. Lord, help me to see others as so worthy of my love and my respect and my, and my service. Lord, remind me that the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first in your kingdom. Lord, I'm so thankful and honored and privileged to have an opportunity to serve you by serving others. Lord, thank you for hunting me down and allowing me to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all, so how is it that we respond to all this? You know, I think that it's got to begin with, and I said it a minute ago, you grab Y'all, it's got to begin with, Lord, wash me. Because I can't be washing somebody else if I hadn't been washed. What did he tell him? He said, you're clean. Tells his guys that, like that night, the night before he's, he's about to about to be crucified, he says you're clean because he's washed them. So, so the first thing is, Lord, wash me. And then we'll talk about washing others later. But if you talk about how do you respond to this, if you've been washed and you're you're wrapped in the Lord's robe of righteousness probably a fancy way to say if you're a Christian well maybe your response is I need to serve I need to wash somebody's feet I'd advise you not to wash Lonnie's but I need to do something I need to serve somebody right I need to love in a revolutionary way I need to be radically humble my posture needs to change I need to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. So maybe that's the way you respond. And I don't know how that plays out in your life, how, how and what and where you serve, but we need to be serving. And again, if you've never been washed, consider not going to bed tonight without saying yes to that message. And that message, again, is simple. It is, I'm a sinner and I'm desperately, I'm drowning and I'm desperately in need to be saved. And his hand is constantly reaching down to pull you up out of the pit. And that offer is always there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I'd, cons uh, I'd ask you to consider today, if you haven't been washed, that you say yes to that. And it is as simple, y'all, as, Lord, I, I'm a sinner and I'm in need. And I believe that you died on that cross to pay a penalty that was my penalty to pay. But I believe, I believe that your death took care of it. And Lord, I believe that you walked out of that grave alive. And that provides me with eternal life. And you just cry out, Lord, save me. And he will save you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I want to turn it back over to our... Uh, to our worship team. And if you need prayer today, our prayer team will be back there in the back. Um, just hang out and talk after church. I want y'all to stand up and, 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 and get ready.